Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I am Jennifer Smith, and I'm here with Stephanie Murray. Stephanie, how are you this fine week? Well, I'm feeling like I'm never going to be able to buy a house, Jen, because Dunkin' Donuts has just added avocado toast to the menu. (laughs) Yeah, we should pause here for some of our listeners to shake their fists at the sky and yell, you know, millennials and your GD avocados. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry for your future house. Uh, No, but really, um, we have lots to discuss. But I just want to say, you know, I think this was kind of the last normal week of our lives in 2020, the week that we're in right now, the end of February, beginning of March. Uh, And it's just kind of crazy to think about. Like, I was out on the campaign trail covering Super Tuesday. I don't know about you. Yeah, we were actually around this time a few weeks maybe even just a week before everything actually got shut down was uh, my partner's birthday. And we had that at the Hawthorne and Eastern Standard, which now are, you know, casualties of all of the closures due to COVID. So it's uh, it's been a weird week where it's literally a year since a bunch of us hung out in a room when we were still not really sure if the protocol was can you bump elbows with people, and and now you know it's a week where in fact the news stories around Eastern Standard and the Hawthorne and Island Creek are they are closed they haven't been able to to get it back together so it's a kind of strange bookend on a strange year. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like in some ways that this year didn't even happen. But on the other hand, uh, this year just happened in the worst way, obviously. And when we come back to normal life at some point, maybe um, a lot of things will be closed. But speaking of uh, things that are closed right now, uh, we have some big news on the education front. Massachusetts Education Commissioner Jeff Riley and you know some other top officials in the Baker administration are calling for getting elementary school students back to in person learning uh, five days a week in April. Yeah. And and the April thing was was kind of interesting to me. Well, as we all were, I assume, riveted watching the press conference announcing announcing these policies as we do every time there's a press conference uh, is is kind of the the question of of why April, you know, there's only a few months left of the school year and also why elementary school students. And I think a few things to, to touch on here are the governor and other members of the state who were talking about this were discussing kind of the ongoing mental health toll and learning loss that's coming from kind of remote or hybrid education, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, and so the state was kind of citing these issues as a reason to push for the return as well as as cases dropping. But it is it is it is kind of an awkward situation and not everyone is thrilled with the idea of of whether or not the governor can kind of force schools to all offer in-person learning. It's going to be fascinating to see what the teachers unions do. Um, they've been really vocal about calling for teachers to be vaccinated before they go back into full time uh, teaching in the building. You know, a lot of school districts are doing hybrid and remote. Um, so teachers are teaching in person in a lot of places sometimes, but not all the time. But the Johnson & Johnson vaccine seems to be on the move as of today. Um, So, you know, maybe the governor is banking on those vaccines coming sooner than later. But the April marker is interesting to me. The Secretary of Education, James Pizer, was on um, WBZ over the weekend on Keller at Large. And he was talking about how there's been so much learning loss over the last year that the state is preparing to really expand summer school programs for kids that are going to be more full than ever. Those will probably start after the 
4th of July um, and will rely on federal funding along with state funding. So they're planning for that as well, just like a lot of different kind of moving pieces here. Can we also kind of talk about sort of the conditions that they're discussing for this return? Um, There, you know, is the idea of a three-foot social distancing as opposed to a six-foot social distancing. Um, The reason it's kind of elementary schools at the moment is because, you know, the older students get, the less likely they are to just kind of be moving around with the same pack of kids. Um, You know, you're in different classes, the, the more complicated the curriculum gets. So what were some of your takeaways on what the actual pitch is for reopening schools in April? So this isn't a done deal. Um, Commissioner Riley has to ask for uh, this to be, you know, voted on and moved forward, but it would give what he's asking for is the authority to kind of force schools uh, to open in person. Um, And he was stressing that parents would still have the right to keep their kids at home and do remote learning, but wanted to make the in-person option available to all students. Um, And I mean, we're at the very end of February. April is not that far away. Um, Another kind of interesting thing to look out for here is whether schools can handle having all the kids in the building um, and distance safely. There's been some debate over whether you know, kids need to be six feet apart in classrooms or if three feet is okay. I think what uh, Pizer and Riley said the other day was that they recommend at least three feet. And if you can do more, do more. But three feet seems to be what they're saying, um, which I think is a little bit different than the CDC guidelines that say six feet. And it's also an interesting local control issue in Massachusetts because, you know, cities and towns are usually given a decent amount of authority over their local education systems. And even if you're looking at whether or not this is legally permissible, prior uh, court decisions have said that, for instance, the Baker administration had the power to close businesses and impose other restrictions because this was in part because the state needed to prevent the spread of COVID. And it's a little bit less clear what this public safety basis would be for ordering schools to reopen. Um, Because my understanding, and again, Stephanie, I promise you watched this presser much closer than I did, um, teachers... And their vaccine status is still kind of a point of some controversy. Right. And some teachers, advocates actually accused Baker of bringing this school issue up this week to kind of distract from the vaccine rollout. Uh, There are, you know, a number of groups that are advocating for uh, a moved up place in line for the vaccine uh, that just aren't getting it yet. Baker stressed that, you know, the state is getting limited access to vaccines from the federal government, things we talked about plenty of times before. But the governor responded to that kind of pointing to statistics that he says uh, show Massachusetts is on the right track. I think the state is probably, I think, ninth or 10th right now for vaccine distribution per capita first dose for the past week Um, and among you know states with more than five million people uh, Massachusetts ranks first for first doses Um, but we'll hear a lot more of that tomorrow um, or maybe today depending on when you're listening to this podcast uh, because the governor is going to testify before an oversight committee on Beacon Hill about the vaccine rollout so you know something to kind of put a pin in and keep watching. Yeah, and it's it's definitely an interesting moment for oversight, basically, on the part of the state legislature on the state's response here, because it's also the same week as new data's out from the Massing polling group on the governor's popularity, because 
Clearly, Steve's spirit is here in the virtual bunker, even though he is physically not here. We aren't even in a physical virtual bunker together, but he definitely is not. Because uh, the Massachusetts polling group looked at the actual approval ratings, and the governor is still riding high. He's got 74% approval and only 20% disapproval among the state's residents. This isn't really a change from, from December 2020, and I know a lot of us were watching to see what the response would be after kind of the holiday surge and how the initial vaccine rollout kind of went off. So what do you think? Is this going to have any kind of impact? Is anyone else raring to go to challenge him this week? You know, if we if we look back at the data um, from other kind of areas where the Baker administration has been criticized, uh, his his approval just hasn't budged. Um, I will note that this is one of the rare times that the legislature is even holding an oversight uh, hearing that the administration uh, is going to be part of. I think the last high-profile one was the RMV situation a few years ago. But, you know, somebody who I suspect is watching uh, those approval ratings pretty closely is the Attorney General Maura Healey, uh, somebody who, uh, just ask anyone (laughs) who might run for governor in 2022, and her name is at the top of the list. She has been popping up uh, touring vaccine sites uh, lately. She's been very critical of the governor on the vaccine rollout in a louder way that she has been in the past, uh, which has led to some speculation, uh, especially in the Boston Globe, about whether she's kind of, you know, doing the the early steps of a campaign. That reporting made me immediately think of our conversation last week with Sean Cotter of the Herald talking about Lelling leaving as the U.S. attorney um, for, for Massachusetts because Part of the issue is always when prosecutors are kind of stepping out of a very strict prosecutorial role to go wading into politics more generally. It reasonably raises those eyebrows about why are you doing this specifically. And I mean, we did, in fact, ask Maura Healy at our live show many, many moons ago if uh, if she was running. And uh, as usual, it was kind of, you know, focused on the on the job at hand. So we'll see. Some people who we know are actually running um, in a different race. I think we should mention uh, that State Representative John Santiago just got into the race for mayor of Boston. Um, And of course, he's been a guest on the horse race a couple of times now, um, including fairly recently in January. So of course, check out that conversation. I think it's episode 164. That's a lot. We have recorded a lot of episodes. I know. We've been in the bunker for so long. And (laughs) and, I mean, John Santiago is joining a cast of three other declared candidates, Maybe four. Um, And then the uh, sort of interesting context there as well is that list might grow a little bit uh, with John Barrows, who's Boston's chief of economic development, who has submitted his resignation letter to Mayor Walsh. And that is widely assumed to be because he's inching closer to a run for mayor. But uh, Stephanie, there was some interesting endorsement news this week on the on the John Santiago subject. Yes, there was. Um, And this is, you know, one of those kind of early examples of the race for mayor being, you know, pretty personal. Um, So Byron Rushing, the former state representative, endorsed Michelle Wu the same day that Santiago got into the race. Uh, We're talking about that because John Santiago upset Byron Rushing and knocked him out of office in 2018. Um, Pretty interesting is, is what I'll say about that. And Stephanie, you talked about one of the other candidates running, Anissa Saibi-George, in Playbook today, because she seems to be aligning herself pretty closely with Mayor Walsh during her run. So what does that actually look like in practice? Does it kind of align with some of the other folks' approach? And why might someone take that tack? 
kind of the early contours of the race are shaping up to be uh, the candidates who got into the race when Mayor Walsh was expected to seek a third term and were basically running against him. Uh, And then the other side is the candidates who are jumping in after it was clear he was uh, leaving. So City Councilor Anissa Sabi George was on um, Channel 5, and she said explicitly that if Marty Walsh was running for a third term, she would not have gotten into the race and she would have looked forward to working with him in his third term. Um, And because he's leaving, she's running, and she, you know, put some emphasis on how they've worked together on different issues, uh, their shared roots in Dorchester. Um, So pretty closely aligning herself with the mayor, which makes sense because Mayor Walsh has a 69% favorability rating, according to the the last Massing polling group poll back in September. You know, he's a pretty popular mayor. Um, And on the other hand, you have Andrea Campbell and Michelle Wu, both city councilors who got into the race in September and have been more critical of Walsh. Uh, So something that we'll see kind of develop. Maybe maybe it will be different as more candidates jump into the race, but that's something I have my eye on. And on that note, can we briefly touch on some of the other trends we're seeing in this race so far? I know everyone is is super excited for us to get into the nitty gritty of the Boston mayoral race this far ahead of things. But uh, I have been fascinated kind of by this this resurgence of an effort that we saw in 2018 by certain kind of black political leaders, many of them former uh, elected officials, many of them just very active in the political community who are kind of trying to form this push to decide on. Um, a black candidate for mayor that they all want to rally behind, um, citing what they say was their success at doing that in 2018 with the Suffolk uh, County District Attorney's race in which Rachel Rollins came out ahead. Um, So that's kind of an interesting dynamic happening right now because currently Andrea Campbell is the only black uh, announced candidate for the office, but Kim Janey is rumored, there may be others. So how are you thinking about kind of the coalitional factions that are already trying to basically carve out some territory in the race? I think a lot of different people see this race as a particular opportunity in Boston. The city has always been led by a white man uh, back to when Boston started. Um, And kind of the overwhelming feeling among sources that I speak to is that this is the time when a person of color will be elected to lead the city. So this group, Wakanda 2, is what they're calling it. It's a group of Black uh, leaders who are kind of working behind the scenes to coalesce behind one candidate. Uh, There is some concern among sources that I've spoken with over the last few weeks that if too many candidates of color get into the race, it could split the vote and create a path for um, a white male candidate to to win. Uh, But for that to happen, a white man would have to get into the race. And we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, that's right. Even if, for instance, uh, Barros gets in and, you know, with John Santiago as well, all of the major candidates are still, in fact, people of color, which is really, really interesting. Um, One other thing that we've talked about in the past is is kind of the uh, I am from here lane. Uh, which is always always interesting in local races because it, it that that approach looks different depending on what the candidate is. Some candidates say, you know, I'm from here and I have seen certain inequities and that's why I want to, you know, fix those things. Some people are saying I'm from here and I want to kind of continue what's already been done. I understand Boston well. And then you have the flip side of that, which is, is there something specific about any locality that means that the best person to run it at any point is someone who is technically 
from there, regardless of how long they've lived in the area. So that's always a dynamic in these races. Uh, it's been really interesting to me to watch a few candidates try and brand that strategy to their specific candidacy. Who are you? Who are you thinking of when you say that? So I'm thinking, as you noted with uh, Anissa, Councillor Asabi George, um, pointing to kind of the Dorchester roots, and then another Dorchester Mattapan candidate, Andrea Campbell, really pointing to kind of her, you know, background here, growing up here with her brother. Um, And I'm sure we'll see that from other folks if they get into the race, because never forget, you know, even Mayor Walsh very much pushed the kind of son of Dorchester vibe during his candidacy so it's a pretty powerful incentive in boston as in a lot of other localities but then you get into kind of the complicated territory of who does that leave out of a conversation michelle Wu is from chicago as is uh current congresswoman ayanna presley so it'll be kind of interesting to see if people can sort of thread that needle uh, in explaining why, for instance, being from a place might matter while not suggesting that someone should not be considered for the job just because they didn't happen to be born here. Yeah, I mean, we've seen and we've talked about so many times the way the electorate in Boston is changing, especially as evidenced in 2018, like you said. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting thread to watch in this mayoral race, whether, you know, putting a premium on being from Boston is going to endure or if that's kind of an idea that's going to go uh, go to the past a little bit. Definitely. Well, Stephanie, I'm glad we got to take a chance to break that down for a bit. Uh, but we have other things to do today that are outside of Boston. And it's a bit of a hot topic right now. What are we talking about for the rest of the episode? We're not going too far out of Boston. We're going to talk about uh, the special election to fill uh, former House Speaker Bob DeLeo's seat up in Winthrop and Revere. And to talk about that, we have Lisa Kaczynski from the Boston Herald and Tori Bedford from GBH. Let's get into it. The special house race to fill Bob DeLeo's seat was upended on Tuesday by allegations of sexual misconduct by a Democratic candidate. Attorney General Maura Healy and former Congressman Joe Kennedy pulled their endorsements from Valentino Capobianco, a member of the Winthrop School Committee, after an an explosive report from GBH News. To talk about the allegations and the race more broadly, we're joined by GBH's Tori Bedford and Lisa Kaczynski of the Boston Herald. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, Tori, let's start with you um, because you broke the story about the endorsements being rescinded. Can you kind of just walk us through what's going on uh, with the Capo Bianco campaign? So this is the information that I received was that there were several uh, victims of sexual harassment and assault who had allegations um, involving uh Tino Capobianco, and they had reached out to Attorney General Maura Healy's office. And so I had independently obtained these emails, and then the office had confirmed that multiple women had reached out. And the allegations included, as I wrote about, they mentioned um, predatory behavior, some repeated unwanted messaging, unwanted sexual advances, and in one, at least in one case, uh, attempting to have sex with a non-consenting inebriated woman. So once these were the Kennedy um, the Kennedy camp, the Kennedy folks and the um, the Healy folks both uh, issued statements once they had um, found out about the allegations, and they said that they had no knowledge of the allegations. 
during the time of their endorsements. Um, but once they were briefed on them and, you know, found that they were credible, they both withdrew their endorsements. And Capobianco denies the allegations. I wonder if either of you can kind of talk to one of the things that came up uh, in the aftermath of the story, which was the idea that people should kind of be independently vetting candidates before they ever make an endorsement to to not deal with this sort of embarrassment. Uh, Tori, you had the emails kind of on your own and then verified them, but were these out there? Were Was anyone aware of these allegations to such an extent that it was weird that Maura Healy or Kennedy would endorse him to begin with? So both the campaigns said that they were not aware of these allegations, and I know that there were... Around the time that he announced his campaign, they had there were several of his old tweets from like 2010, 2013 that had emerged and where he said some what people were saying was really questionable stuff. And we were actually going to we were talking about whether or not that was relevant to the story, because I think that the accusations and the allegations that we had and verified were sort of of a different category. Um, obviously, you know, it's all puzzle pieces in a in a big picture but I think that we specifically looked at just these allegations from these verified sources that we had I know that there was a lot of social media buzz though and so if the campaigns were aware of those tweets I'm not sure but I know that they had said that they weren't aware of the specific allegations that I brought to them and that um, the emails contained and Lisa, you've been following kind of the the reaction to this story. We know that there's been kind of a an exodus of other endorsements. Um, and you've been looking at the candidates' fundraising reports and kind of who's supporting them. So could you tell us kind of who who else has rescinded endorsements and who uh, Capo Bianco's supporters have been? Yeah, it was interesting because the fallout, you know, was pretty swift. Um, you know, more people pulled their endorsements as soon as Tory's story broke. Um, you know, you had Capobianco's former boss, uh, State Senator Paul Feeney. You had Suffolk Sheriff Steve Tompkins, um, Planned Parenthood, um, and some groups like that who hadn't specifically endorsed a candidate in the race, but were promoting kind of three of the Democrats um, against Jeff, or I guess over Jeffrey Turco, um, were kind of saying now there's only two candidates that we can support in this race, you know, after the story broke. But it was interesting, too, because, you know, I went on the fundraising that night on on OCPF and Valentino Capobianco had raised about five thousand dollars last time I had checked um, on the day that the story broke. Um, and yeah, there were definitely um, there were contributions coming in from um, Martha Coakley, from a few other kind of big names that were still donating. I don't know if it was, you know, we don't have the timestamps on those, but we do know that they came in that day. And of course, you know, as journalists, we often end up in the situation where we're trying to verify things in part based on anonymous sourcing, where some of the people that we're talking to are in kind of a a protected or vulnerable category of people. And so that in combination with sort of this this haunting figure of an opposition dump timing right at the end of an election can often lead to an amount of skepticism from readers who haven't maybe been paying attention to the race that far. So can you kind of walk us through what the process was for sort of verifying the claims and then how you grapple with that kind of context in the background? Yeah, so 
obviously when someone comes to me with an allegation like this, I take it very seriously and I look at it very critically. And so we worked very, very, very hard to make sure that all of this was credible and that it was verified. And a spokesperson for Healy did confirm to us that she had received multiple emails of this nature. And we had other allegations that, you know, we'd reach out to say, when was this? Where was this? Um, you know, who was there? Who might remember it? Who did you talk to about it at the time? And then contact those people and say, do you remember hearing about this? What did this person say to you about this? And then putting it through the filters of multiple editors and our legal team. And so the idea that this is just a coordinated oppo dump before an election, it seems like they're saying that, you know, that perhaps I, either I was tricked into that or that, um, you know, that that somehow I'm a part of it. But that's just not at all how the process works, because we all we have in journalism is our reputation and our integrity and our credibility. And so when we take on stories like this, obviously, the people who come forward take on the biggest risk. And it's extremely scary and brave and you know, I think it takes a lot out of someone, but it's also a risk as a journalist to take those claims seriously. And I think that that's an important thing to do is to obviously not to be to, you know, to be cliched, but to trust but verify. We also um, reached out to Capo Bianco's campaign. Um, we tried to give them as much time as possible um, while working with the campaigns who were sort of making their own revelations and kind of trying to move everything forward. And so every time, you know, someone would say, okay, well, um, someone else came forward and now, you know, you have to verify that claim and work on that. And once that's verified and seems ironclad and credible, then you go to the campaign and you say, this is another allegation that is being put out against you. Like, we just found out about it. We're trying to give you as much time as possible to respond. And so we did that for every single thing that came up because things were just kind of at a certain point, there was more momentum and things just started rolling in. So what does this do to the race moving forward? I think we should mention this is a special election, so it's happening outside kind of the normal schedule and on a condensed timeline. Uh, ballots have already gone out for the March 2nd primary uh, through the state's expanded vote-by-mail program tour. You mentioned that forum last night. Uh, the issue came up at the beginning, but then uh, the other candidates didn't raise it uh, throughout the rest of the hour. Um, so Lisa, could you talk about who else is running and and how this has scrambled the race, if at all? Yeah, I would say it's definitely um, throwing a wrench in it very close to the end. Um, I guess we'll see what happens because right now, um, you know, as I was kind of saying, Tino Capobianco is still second in fundraising in this field. And the candidate who has the most amount of money raised is Jeffrey Turco, who's a Democrat, but he's the one who had kind of up until this point been taking a lot of heat in this race. Um for views that even some of his fellow candidates have said are maybe a little less um, purely democratic, um, you know, sanctuary cities. Uh, he's not fully a supporter of that, you know, because he's talked about how it um, can hamstring law enforcement. And, you know, that has been a major talking point in this campaign, actually, um, you know, because you have another candidate 
uh, Juan Jaramillo, who is an immigrant um, and who has been outspoken against these viewpoints that Jeffrey Turco has. So up until this point, it was actually kind of Turco that had been the, um, you know, that had been the target in this race. So um, then you also have Alicia Delvento, um, who also has experience on Beacon Hill. Um, you know, she is the woman in this race um, at, at this point. So uh, yeah, that's kind of the field right now. You also have a Republican and an independent candidate um, that will come into play a little bit later down the road. So, I mean, exactly to that point, what were Capabianco's slash R. Capabianco's voters believed to be? You know, what is the base here that if he were to drop out or if he were to lose a significant portion of his support, who would that go to based on the other people in the race right now, kind of in your view, covering it? Um, well, there is some overlap. I know that some of his supporters were um, in you know, not quite happy that Bernie Sanders had endorsed Juan Jaramillo. Um, a lot of 2020 Bernie activists were behind, um, or are behind, I should say, Juan. Um, but some of his 2016 supporters, um, you know, people who had been a little more active in that first bid as well, um, they were actually behind Tino, including um, State Senate Paul, um, Paul Feeney, who you know, had done a lot with Sanders in 16, was one of his co-chairs again this time around. Um, and, you know, a former Bernie staffer also works on Tino's campaign. So maybe um, he will get some of that, um, maybe a little more progressive vote. Um, you know, maybe some of those progressive voters will go a little bit more to some of the other candidates now that they've seen this. Um, but it is kind of hard to know in these like hyper-local races, they don't always fall along these very clean cut you know, moderate progressive lines. I'd be interested to hear what you both think this uh, means for the state Democratic Party moving forward. Capo Bianco is an elected member of the Democratic State Committee. Uh, some pretty high profile Democrats had endorsed him and rescinded those endorsements. Um, and the party was already being uh, criticized for a similar uh, situation uh, with Holyoke Mayor Alex Moore, similar in the way that allegations uh, surfaced uh, really close to an election. I mean, I mean, how does the state party play into this Um any thoughts there? I do think that so many people who spoke to me said that this is and has been kind of a big open secret. And Winthrop is a very small town and it's very insular. And a lot of people had been talking. And so obviously, as a journalist, you hear about rumors and that is meaningless, right? That's hearsay. It doesn't hold any weight. And so that's when your verification process begins. But there had been you know, quite a few whisperings. And I had joined like a, a couple of Facebook groups. And, you know, there's just like a dialogue that goes on. Um, and you have to start to wonder if there's any truth to that. I do think there's a possibility that the campaigns, you know, may not have spent that much time digging into Twitter replies or Facebook comments or you know, being a part of these groups or knowing people on a local level. I don't, that's not to say that they, you know, that's not a, that's not something they should have done, but I'm not sure that they did that. And there's a possibility that this is a secret that they did not know about. Yeah, I think with some of these higher level endorsements coming in, I mean, Bernie Sanders in his tweet endorsing Juan, I think misspelled 
not misspelled, but kind of misstated what the district was that he was running for. So I'm not really sure the level, especially for these types of hyperlocal races that goes into the process of these endorsements. Um, you know, I know that there's a lot of establishment, uh, you know, politics going on and stuff and endorsements can be kind of influenced maybe by who you know, um, which, you know, can apply in all scenarios with the endorsements that we're flying in this race. Yeah. And I think lastly, before we let you go, you know, the the election is roaring around the corner right now. There's another uh, forum hosted by State House News Service tomorrow on Thursday. But but the thing that I'm really curious for for both of you is, Tori, you mentioned kind of the changing comments coming from the Capobianco campaign in in you know, multiple iterations. And Lisa, obviously, you're watching sort of this entire race unfold. So as we get ever closer to the end, are you watching to see if he drops out? Are you watching to see if a story changes? Or if you just watch it? Are you just watching to see if, you know, he can stop the bleeding? I think that the biggest issue that was presented to me by the people who had who were bringing these allegations forward was that they were upset that Capobianco was getting such big name endorsements from people who they assumed didn't know about these allegations. Um, I don't know if he'll drop out. I'm not sure, you know, where he stands on that. I think he, I, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure from his statement that I think at the very end of it, um, he says... I'd like to think that despite any personal embarrassment this story brings to me, the people of this district will know me, who know me, I'm sorry, will decide that I can still do more for their families and our community over the next two years than can any of the other candidates running. If that is the case, I'd be honored and humbled to become their voice and their vote on Beacon Hill. And so I don't think that, I mean, that's how he ended his statement. I, Based on that, I don't think he intends to drop out. I know there is mounting pressure from this kind of continued withdrawing of of um, endorsements, but I really have no idea what's going to happen. The election is very soon. At this point with the election coming up around the corner, you know, it's he's a pretty well-known figure in the community who obviously has some base of support that is still with him giving, uh, given the money he was able to bring in on Tuesday, um, you know, with this story. So I think that he likely at this point stays in. So this is moving quickly. By this time next week, we'll know the results of the primary election. But until then, uh, Tori Bedford of GBH and Lisa Kaczynski of the Boston Herald, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. That was great. Thanks for having me. And so that brings us to the end of our show. And before we leave, we want to ask you, what were you doing on this last final week of normal life before COVID-19 uh, changed everything? Uh, if you want to share, feel free to you know tweet at us, send us a message, send us an email, uh, record a voice memo and text it to me. We will read our favorites or play them next week. Gosh, that's a good and, and kind of depressing question. Unless someone had a really good last week right before quarantine, in which case it might make us all feel a little tiny bit better. But that is all the time we have for this particular week. I am Jennifer Smith, and I am here with Stephanie Murray. Our producer, as always, is Libby Gormley. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for the Politico Massachusetts Playbook if you're not already subscribed. If you need some polls done, call the Massing Polling Group. We'll see you next week.